Hello Brooklyn, how you doing? You where you going? We cannot come to And if I can, I'ma be your man You can be my lady and have my baby And drive my car You got me crazy so Whatever you going, baby, you just take me Cause I'm so taken Hello, Nets fans. How you doing? The Russell and Fro podcast is back with a Thanksgiving hangover edition. Russell and Fro, here as is tradition, I am Brett, the man bun Garofalo, sitting here six cups of bulletproof coffee deep and still unable to summon my mental faculties, although they may not have been there in the first place, so this could be par for the course. Tough to tell today after six meals. Uh, We are accompanied by the cap space guru, the king of quip, Carl the talent Jackson on this sleepy November Friday. Carl, we'll begin as we always do. How are you, my friend? I'm good, Brett. I'm ready for the uh, the Black Friday edition of the Russell and Fro podcast. It's going to cost you 50% of what it normally does, uh, which is free. Uh, but I am excited because the Nets have made a what appears to be a final roster move, certainly a, a move to take them up to 15 uh, roster members, which is bringing back Tyler Johnson and Tyler Johnson's neckbeard on a minimum contract, uh, a little bit less than the uh, poison pill qualifying offer Sean Marks made to him a couple years ago in restricted free agency. Um, how, how are we feeling about that? You know, I feel lukewarm about it, I guess. It's uh, like, if let's say uh, the Tyler Johnson signing was me getting into the shower and testing the temperature for the first time. I'd stick my hand in it and I'd be like, you know what? I can mess with that. I can get into that shower. I'm not going to be too hot. I'm not going to be too cold. And then I can adjust the temperature as is once I'm in there. It's pretty unintrusive. It's a wonderful, wonderful metaphor. Uh, I love it. Um, so as you know, and listen, like we don't know if, if we're complete or not, I should say in terms of the overall offseason moves, but uh, definitely feels like we're at a, a stopping point of sorts. And um, we've definitely seen some pretty varied takes all the way across Nets you know, Twitter and that's fandom. So why don't we start at the end here? Uh, let's just kind of sum things up in just sort of one, one take, Brett. Why don't, why don't you be the coffee mug half full uh, on this uh, Black Friday and I will be the coffee mug half empty. Give me your most optimistic take on the overall Nets offseason. I am all in for this. This is my most optimistic take and – a crazy part of me believes this, which shows how far we've come as Nets fans and as a franchise. Nothing that the Nets have done in the offseason so far should be judged as the Nets offseason because everything has, A, helped the team in some way, and B, maintained the trade and salary cap flexibility to bring in James Harden raise our championship ceiling significantly, which is very difficult to do on a team that already has Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. And that move is 100% happening, despite all the rumors that the Nets are pursuing other options and the Rockets are unwilling or uninterested to trade for the Nets' assets. It's happening. The tea leaves are there. Big enough folks have reported on it, and it's simply a matter of time. That's why Marks is standing pat and making moves around the margins versus looking to meaningfully upgrade around the framework that the Nets have in place. We're getting hardened, baby. <laughs> All right, so I will uh, I'll go in the opposite direction. I will come in with uh, the glass half empty take. Um, the, or the, the 
most pessimistic take I can summon. So I, I, I'm still not going to get to where a lot of Nets Twitter is uh, in terms of, you know, crying about a bunch of, you know, veterans, minimum guys or, or, or lower tier guys uh, or mid tier guys, I guess, not willing to come take less money to come to the Nets. Um, I, I can't quite get there. But what I will say is, you know, I do wonder when we take a step back um, and we look with hindsight at this off season, you know, we've talked about a lot at the beginning, you know, what type of player would make the most sense for this team. Obviously it was a big time defender. Obviously Drew Holiday's name was, was thrown out there pretty frequently. Um, I just can't help but wonder, did Kevin Durant try to pull a LeBron? Did he try to, you know, work to get uh, James Harden, you know, work with James Harden to force Harden's way into Brooklyn? And did that create a smokescreen that sort of took their eye off the ball of, you know, making the, the Drew Holiday move, which I think, you know, Harden obviously is the home run in this scenario. I think, you know, Holiday is probably a double. Um, but I think you, you could have hit a double and, and really improved this team instead of, uh, you know, a couple bunt singles uh, like they like they did, um, you know, with, with marginal moves like Landry Shamet, Bruce Brown, you know, both of which I really do like, honestly and truly. Um, but I just wonder a little bit, you know, if we're holding, if we're holding to make another deal, you know, we have realistically a two-year window here. And you're talking about James Harden, who's under contract for another two more seasons. You're talking about Bradley Beal, who is under contract for, for longer than that, you know, at some point, the opportunity cost of not doing anything becomes a little bit magnified when you only have a two two year window to drop it in. So that would be my my pessimistic take. But but let's let's just quickly go through and uh, recap what what the Nets actually did, um, and then we can we can talk about it a little bit more. Does that sound good? Yes, I have a lot of ways that I want to respond to that. Some in agreement, some not in agreement. But let's go through the moves first before I get way too off the rails, as I typically do on our podcast. Sure, absolutely. So uh, the biggest move, I think the priority number one move was the Nets re-signed Joe, Joey Buckets, uh, Beef Jerky Joe Harris to a four-year, $75 million contract. Uh, very excited for him to get paid. I think, you know, Sean Marks mentioned it uh, when, you know, on signing day that he's just really become the epitome of everything that this sort of Nets program represents. Could not be happier for him, could not be happier that he's sticking around in Brooklyn. Price tags a bit on the high side although i think once we've seen kind of what the terms are including like the five hundred thousand dollar bonuses for the team winning the championship um it's a little bit more toward reasonable um you know and a little bit a little bit of mark Barlstein fluffing fluffing the sheets on that one a little bit um but that was the that's the biggest move uh in terms of other moves uh they declined the five million dollar option on garrett temple he signed uh for a similar uh, figure with the chicago bulls they acquired Bruce Brown uh, from the Detroit Pistons for Jenna Musa and Toronto's 2021 second round pick. They acquired Landry Shamit from the Los Angeles Clippers for the uh, number 19 pick in this draft, which ended up being Sadiq Bay. Uh, that was a three-way deal. The Clippers actually got Luke Kennard from Detroit. Detroit took Bay with the 19th pick, and um, and the the Nets got Shamit. And then I was never 100% clear if the Nets swapping 55 and 57 with the Clippers was like a different deal or if it was part of that deal. I still haven't really gotten a straight answer on that. Um, but they did draft Reggie Perry with that number 57 overall. 
Uh, and then the big free new, you know, outsider free agent signing for the Nets was everybody, as, as everybody expected, uh, a former teammate of Kevin Durant, a uh, front court member, Jeff Green, uh, signed to a veteran's minimum one year, uh, $2.5 million deal. Um, that's very exciting. Obviously, I'm joking about Serge Ibaka there. Uh, and uh, last but not least, obviously, as we mentioned today, Tyler Johnson uh, was re-signed for the minimum. And I, and I assume, so the Nets had extended a $1.5 million qualifying offer to Chris Chioza. I, I would guess that given that Johnson puts them at the 15-man threshold, um, Chioza is probably not going to, like, like that, that offer is going to get rescinded. I could be wrong there um, if there's another move in the works, potentially. But that leaves the Nets depth chart at, a um, you know starting five presumably of Kyrie Irving, Karis LeVert, Joe Harris, Kevin Durant, and DeAndre Jordan. A backup five presumably of Spencer Dinwiddie, Landry Shamit, Torian Prince, Jeff Green, and Jared Allen. And then a uh, third group of Tyler Johnson, Bruce Brown, Timothy Luau Cabarro, Rodion Skarouks, and Nick Claxton. Um, that is a legit 13 NBA rotation guys deep, possibly 14 or 15, uh, depending on you know what you expect from, from Kuroks or Claxton. Um, and then in terms of two ways, uh, Reggie Perry, we mentioned, I think you can you could pretty well pencil him in for one of those, maybe maybe an erasable pen. Um, and then Jeremiah Martin, I believe, uh, from, from last season is probably the other two-way, um, although maybe not. They, they also extended uh, Exhibit 10 contracts to Nate Sestina, who is a stretch four from Kentucky, and Jordan Bowden, who is a guard from Tennessee. So those guys will both be coming to camp as well. Did I miss anything in there? You didn't. I just think there's a couple tea leaves to read as we're going through this. Number one, the Nets specifically targeted folks that have colors as their last names. Bruce Brown, Jeff Green, Reggie Periwinkle Blue. And also, if we're looking to facilitate a future Harden trade, what restaurant chain does now Houston Rockets owner and son own Landry's. We also have a Landry Shamit. What better way to celebrate your restaurant chain than to, uh, than to trade for a guy that also has the name and be able to market around that? I think the I think it's just obvious what's happening here. What? Uh, I've, never, I've literally never heard of a Landry's. What is that like a steakhouse or is it like named after Tom Landry? I wish it was named after Tom Landry. Unfortunately, for Tita is a Houston guy, so I don't think he would ever do that. But it's a it's a really nice steakhouse slash seafood restaurant in the great state of Texas and the South. Oh, all right, very good, very good. I'll have to check it out next time I'm down there. Um, I, yeah, I think the other thing. I mean, my my first reaction to the Brown and Shamit signings was also with regards to like a Harden trade or a bigger trade. Like they, they had definitely assembled. I think between. Tyler Johnson, Landry Shamit, Bruce Brown, uh, TLC, and Jeff Green, um, and you could possibly throw Karuks or Claxton in there. Like those are all guys who I think. Um, I mean, skip Claxton and Karuks for now because I, I think that that uh, waters this point down. But between Johnson, Shamit, Brown, and Green, right? That's four guys who you could have be a, you know on a bench unit that are all making you know two million dollars or under each, or three million dollars or under each. So. Um, in turn, you know, if you if you were going to fortify that front line with a gigantic contract, uh, you know, that would be one way to, to be able to you know operate fiscally moving forward. Um, so, you know, that that was one thought there. I think in terms of just like flotsam and jetsam, and and I think it also gives you the flexibility. You know, even if you don't pull the trigger on that deal, you know, is there a Spencer Dinwiddie trade in their future? Is there a Torian Prince trade in their future? I don't know. 
Um, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, where they are. But but I think all you know everything that we've heard more recently indicates that you know they're prepared to at least start the season with this particular group. Um, and so I think you know as we're talking about where they sit relative to the rest of the league, you know we can we can talk a little bit about what we think this this group looks like together. I I agree. I so before we get into that, I. And I'm curious to get your take on this because I've seen analysts across the board go one way or the other. I want to look at the Landry Shamit, Luke Kennard pick swap as a microcosm of what the Nets might be thinking overall in the offseason. We'll start with a simple question. Would you rather have Luke Kennard or would you rather have Landry Shamit, and I ask that because, by all accounts, both of those folks were available to the Nets via this trade, and we chose Shamit over Kennard. So, uh, as, as you can hear me typing in the background, I'm just quickly looking up uh, Luke Kennard's salary. I think I think ultimately the answer is Kevin Durant would rather have Landry Shamit. Um, well, Kennard's at five point two million this season, and if he was extended the qualifying offer after this year, when his contract expires, it would be five point seven million. Whereas Shamit is right under two mil, and he's signed for this season and next season. Next season will be just over two million dollars. Yeah, so I mean, I think financially, I would probably rather have Shamit. I think Kennard is probably a, a slightly better overall basketball player. Um, do, do you do you happen to have their shooting numbers in front of you? I do. They shot about the same from three. Shamit was on a bit higher volume. If you look across the board at their stats, it wasn't as big of a drop off defensively as I thought between Kennard and Shamit. But that also could be that Shamit just didn't have a big defensive role on a team like the Clippers when they had a lot of wings to throw at those bigger bodies. Kennard has higher assist and rebound numbers, but it seemed it, it seemed closer than I would have thought, even when you look into things like offensive and defensive rating, VORP, uh, box plus minus, the defense wasn't a massive difference. So that's good to hear. I mean, the sense that I have between the two is that Kennard is a little bit more complete as a player. I think he can give you a little bit more as a, as a ball handler, potentially, whereas Shamit, I think, is, is really just a kind of um, shooter off the bench. I really like... Um, and I'm going to pose this back to you as a, as a hypothetical in a second here, but I, I really like the Shamit signing. I, I have gotten pretty excited about just, just from watching clips of him. I think he can fill a role as both sort of a kind of microwave bench guy, which maybe the Nets haven't seen since uh, microwave Marcus Thornton um, <laughs> a few years ago. Uh, I made that nickname up just now. And I don't think that Mike, that Marcus Thornton was ever actually good for the Nets either, but I remember him just destroying us once uh, when he was playing for the Kings and being very excited when they signed him. Um, but anyway, so so I think he's a you know he's a great shooter. He's he's another guy I think like Joe Harris who uh, can can just run around and run off screens and stuff like that. So I, I think that you know he's he's a very off ball player, um, which makes a ton of sense. I definitely feel like there is an element of um, the Nets recognizing the value in having second round picks uh, or, you know, second round picks on their roster, both in terms of just 
the way that those rookie scale contracts work, the financial flexibility that you have with them going forward, and then also like how you have to pay them less just in general. Um, and I think you see that with sort of like taking Nick Claxton in the second round last year, trading out of the first round of, of both of these drafts. Um, I think my secret answer to your question, and, and I'm, I, I get Sean Marks is thinking about this, but I might disagree with him a little bit, is um, who would I have rather had from that trade is probably Sadiq Bey. Uh, just because I think that he can actually be a three and D wing and just by virtue of being a little bit bigger um, would step in and give you a little bit more defensively. Yeah. Maybe it wouldn't have worked out quite as well or quite as quickly. Um, and so I understand sort of taking the bird in hand of, you know, Shannon because you can plug him into the roster right away. Um, but, you know, Bay, I think at least fit theoretically what, what the Nets probably should have been looking for, or at least have a little bit of a hole at in their roster, which is, which is wing defense. I I agree with you. If you're thinking about the team long term, I think Sadiq Bey projects out to have a much better defensive career than both. He won't be as good of a playmaker as Kennard is, and he may not be as good of a shooter as either Shamit or Kennard are, but the added element of defense and not taking one part of the floor away when he's on there is huge. I think the way the way that I think about this is what do Kennard and Shamit look like within the framework of the Nets as constructed over the next two years? Contractually, like you pointed out astutely, Shamit makes way more sense. He makes a, way less money, and he provides about the same shooting as Kennard. But also, they're not going to be asked to take on ball handling duties and playmaking duties. So the elements that Kennard has over Shamit are minimized based on the role that he would have within the Nets as constructed within the time frame that we would, we would want him to be here, which would theoretically be the next two years and then reassess after that. So given that Shamit is a bit more of a volume shooter or run around screens guy, I think he does make more sense for the Nets. And the fact that we'll have him after this year solidifies that for me. That being said, I think it's interesting if we th look at Kennard as the better player, which if you dig into the advanced metrics, maybe he is. Being on a one-year deal and knowing that he probably wouldn't get re-signed as somebody's going to offer him more money somewhere else, does that potentially speak to the way the Nets are thinking about this upcoming season and whether or not they're truly going all in on this season or they're thinking about that second year as the year when we're truly going to have our shot as a championship team. Well, I think, I think either way, I don't necessarily know that you have to frame it as this year versus next year. Um, I think you could just frame it as like, it's a two year window and you want to cover both. I mean, it doesn't necessarily help you, like, I certainly don't think you want to put yourself into a scenario where you have a big drop-off in talent from this year to next year because you've scrambled to get all these one-year deals in place, um, and then all of a sudden, like, that roster blows up and you're left at square one. Because I think, you know, if, if you assume everything else to stay constant, like the roster to stay constant, et cetera, like, I think next year logically should probably be your better shot at it because you get, uh, you know, an additional year of play under KD and Kyrie you know, belt together, you have a little bit more of an idea of who you are, like it gives you a chance to, you know, put together a real chance at running at the title and then actually run that team back. Um, so, I mean, that, that that's sort of my thought there. From a cost perspective, it does make sense. I, I would also say, I don't necessarily think that Luke Kennard is the better player right now. I think Luke Kennard has the, the higher theoretical ceiling just because he can do more with the ball. Um, but I also feel like, you know, 
these moves, like, like I said, sort of say two things to me. One is um, obviously, you know, understanding sort of the undervalued asset that there is in, in having second round picks on your roster that can contribute. And two is I think, you know, really looking at guys based on their floor, much less than their ceiling right now. Uh, because, you know, you're looking at guys, you're plugging in and you want them to deliver in the next two years. You don't want them to deliver maybe, you know, in the future. So, um, and also like, this isn't the area for variance on your roster, right? That's, that comes in Kevin Durant's <laughs> injury recovery. So, um, but let me, let me, let me pose this to you a different way. And we haven't really talked about Brown. I, I really like the Brown signing a lot. I think he's somebody that the Nets need in terms of a, a point of attack defender. Um, and he's somebody that I really felt like was going to be part of Detroit's core going forward. I have no fucking what they did in free agency um i thought they had a, a pretty nice draft and then just a absolute batshit free agency but um let me pose it to you this way would you rather have landry shamit and bruce brown who as we read off the um the depth chart are, are probably sort of buying for the same roster slot right now or garrett temple listen man don't poo poo our boy mason Plumley getting paid three-year deal for a center wild i I agree with you. I would rather have Bruce Brown and Shamit because it gives us more options in our lineup. We can go all defense. Brown can theoretically shoot from the corner based on what he showed last season. So he, he doesn't. He shot real well from the corner last season. Yeah, I mean, he shot better than Torian Prince from the corner, who's supposed to be, uh, you know, like a arch- archetypal three and D wing for the for the league as constructed right now. Hey, Brett. To quote Outcast, what's cooler than being cool? Torian Prince from the left corner. <laughs> oh god it, it it pains me but hey i feel like there's nowhere to go but up from last season for torian prince so if nets fans want to look for any silver lining in the way that he performed last season smaller role there's no way he can possibly get worse and he seems, he seems like a hard worker yeah i i think that's fair i think um you know you're you're gonna do a lot better playing you know if the knock on you is that defensively you're getting lost and, and, and you're, you're really struggling out there, I think, you know, a great way to improve that is defending bench players all year. So that's what he'll be doing. And, and, uh, you know, I hope that works out for him. But yeah, when's the last time the Nets had a really athletic guard who could come in, defend, make highlight plays on the fast break, be the guy that when he's on the floor, he's a fan favorite. Everybody's watching. He, like he, like almost maybe like a Nawaba, but that was a very very short lived, uh, short lived amount of excitement. He was never really a dunker for us. Is the answer going to be Marshawn Brooks? I I mean maybe, but even Brooks wasn't an above the rim player. Ger- I mean Gerald Green that one season where he caught the alley oop and windmilled it. That was pretty sweet. That was pretty sweet. Markel Brown. I don't think Keith Bogans qualifies. Uh, Keith, maybe Keith Bogans twenty years ago. <laughs> <laughs> um. So sorry, did, 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 I don't know if you answered my question. <laughs> I, I would rather have Bruce Brown and Landry Samet as a tandem, especially on <laughs> the did. length of their contracts, the way that they're cost controlled. Um, and there's not, I don't think there's anything that within the framework of the Nets system, Luke Kennard does that would make the Nets a better team based on what his role would be that would make it worth A, only having him for a year and B, spending more than twice the amount that we're spending currently on Landry Shamit. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, and, and, and from my view, I think, you know, if you're if you're talking about Brown and Shamit versus Temple, um, the way that I look at it is sort of Temple is, is you know, second best offensively and defensively among those three. Um, Brown is obviously the best defender. You know, I think Shamit is a better offensive player by a considerable margin over Temple, and Brown, I think, is a better defender uh, by 
a smaller margin uh, over Temple. And, you know, there's something to be said for having that optionality as you put lineups together, um, you know, with guys coming off your bench. Like, the, the thing that I've just been salivating over is the idea of putting Shamit and Harris and Kyrie and KD and who cares who the fifth person is on the floor at the same time, you know, particularly if, if you're like on a sideline out of bounds play or something like that, um, so, you know, like late in the game, um, or you just need to bring the flamethrower out down the stretch. So that that's pretty exciting. And I think there are some fun lineups that you can get into um, with, you know, with Brown defensively coming in um, and, you know, just, just making some progress, uh, as a guard, um, particularly playing in front of, you know, another good defender who the Nets have retained, uh, perhaps unintentionally, uh, in Jared Allen. So I, I guess the, the next thing that I, I wanted to, to kind of talk about quickly is, is we just, you know, is just sort of assessing the Nets moves as a whole. I guess, was there anything that you thought that they were going to do that they didn't do? Um, like on a more, I guess, granular level than, than this. Like, so, so obviously we talked about, you know, waiting for the Harden trade and, and that kind of stuff. Less referring to that, more thinking about like, are there smaller moves that you thought could have fit into maybe this framework that you would have rather had them made? Like, is there somebody that you would have rather brought in than Jeff Green? I'm sure there's a lot of guys I would have rather brought in from Jeff Green. I will say the most surprising element to our offseason thus far has been the fact that the triumvirate of trade rumors, Jared Allen, Spencer Dinwiddie, and Karis LaVert are all still on the current Nets roster as constructed. I thought that there was a 1% chance of that happening after the trade moratorium opened. And the fact that they're still here either says that the Nets organization has significantly more faith in our roster as constructed to win a championship in the next two years, or they didn't feel like the current price for the pieces that were out there was worth giving up the so-called poo-poo platter. And it makes more sense for them as a franchise to stand pat and hope that something opens up as some of these teams realize the situations that they're in may not be as good as they anticipated, whether it's competing for a championship, making the playoffs, revenue-wise, you name it. We're still going to be smack dab in the middle of a massive COVID spike, recession, not a lot of fans are going to be in the seats. I, I think there could be some things to take advantage of. As far as players I rather would have had over Jeff Green, yeah, of, of course there's a few. Um, I, I do like that Green was willing to take a minimum contract and only sign for a year to play with Kevin Durant. So I do think that was a small win for KD. Uh, Landry Shamit is a friend of KG, KD from the pickup games in California this summer, but we had to get, acquire him via trade, so that wasn't really the same thing. Um, would I have rather had Mo Harkless than Jeff Green? Yeah, I think I think a case could be made there. I think a case could be made there. I He could play some small ball five, especially for this Nets team. He's not a good a shooter as Jeff Green is, but he's certainly a better and more intelligent defender. Outside of that, I mean, it would be it would have been great to sign Wes Matthews, but he ended up signing for more than Green signed, and he said that he valued getting a chip, and he viewed the team that just won the championship over one that had a lot of question marks. He didn't specifically call it the Nets, obviously, but he looked around the league and said, hey, what's my best shot at winning the championship? Going to the Lakers because they just won. So if I'm looking at any of these free agents, that sign that I rather would have had over Jeff Green, Ibaka, obviously, he is one of the few centers that can actually defend the post 
and block shots at the rim and theoretically guard a larger player like a Joel Embiid, who we will probably be matched up with at some point uh, in the playoffs and shoot from three so he doesn't take that off the table. Yeah, definitely. If we want to go down the list, downshift a little bit, Mo Harkless, I think I would rather have him over Jeff Green, though I think Jeff Green in a limited role and in the small ball era is much more valuable than he was previously. And then maybe a player like a Wes Matthews to give us a little bit more wing depth and a little, uh, another body to throw at the Jimmy Butlers, Jason Tatums, the Ben Simmons, the Pascal Siakams, the players that we're going to match up with in the second round and beyond that if we have a Kevin Durant or one of our main offensive creators guarding, that's not an ideal spot to be in. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, the, the list that you're referring to uh, is, is you know, we, we've just pulled together a quick list of everybody that signed for less than the TPMLE. Um, that doesn't include a bucket. You know, I, I, I think when looking at the green signing, um, I, you know, I expected them to, you know, that was sort of on my list of, of what the Nets needed was somebody that could play that role that could be sort of a, a crossover, you know, four slash small ball five. Um, I feel like with Green, you know, he, he's a little bit more on the wingy. You know, uh, at one point in, for, for the offseason, I had broken the players that we needed down into big stretchy wings and stretchy wingy bigs. Um, and so I think he's a little bit more of like a big stretchy wing um that is you know sort of playing a center role um you know in the small ball era i don't hate him as somebody that can you know you could you could throw out there on a bigger sort of bigger three or a four um i'm interested to see how the nets defense kind of works out i mean the, the other thing that you would really like is you know that sort of defender that could that could take kind of you know the the preeminent threes and fours of the league obviously those guys don't grow on trees and they're pretty much at a premium. Um, I had thought for a little while that, that perhaps you would see, uh, you know, like a Michael Kidd Gilchrist or, you know, potentially a Rhonda Hallis Jefferson guys that, you know, maybe you could get at a little bit of a discount because they don't shoot very well. Um, but by putting, you know, somebody like a green neck to them, you know, you could, you could bring them in um, to, to fill that need. Um, so that's a little bit disappointing that they didn't get there. I mean, but just looking on the list of guys that were available for less than the, the tax pyramid level, um, I guess Harkless is the one that sort of stands out to me. And the other guys like Bobby Portis, I think I'd rather have Green, Harry Giles, same thing. Um, Gasol or Nerlens Noel are, are interesting, but they would have required an additional move off of that. Um, and then, you know, you get into the wings like Wes Matthews. I think I agree with you. I would have taken him, Avery Bradley, um, Ken Bazemore, Torrey Craig, you know, potentially um, any of those guys. But I, I don't know that that – any of them are such slam dunks that I'm like disappointed that the Nets went the direction that they did. I feel like, you know, green fits, you know, that, that was a position of need much more so than if you brought in like a Wes Matthews, because I feel like in theory, you know, you have enough defensively at that position between Levert and Brown and Dinwiddie that, you know, you should be okay locking up those types of guys. So I, you know, I feel like, you know, green, it's not the shiny object that I think everybody wanted, but uh, I definitely think it's like the. Mo I mean, like Nate Duncan had a, had a tweet where he was just like, "This is one of the most no-brainer fit signings of the offseason." Um, you know, he's a guy that fit perfectly and was available at the minimum. I'm not really worried that the Nets didn't use their their tax pyramid level. I do think you know the Abaka thing. Um, the Abaka thing was like super interesting to me because I think a lot of Nets fans kind of conflated. Um, you know, two, two, two ideas there. One being that the Nets needed this sort of 
four, small ball five, and the other being that the Nets wanted Ibaka. Uh, Ibaka is not a four. Like Ibaka could like if if you think that uh, the Nets could start. Serge Ibaka next to, you know, Serge Ibaka at power forward next to DeAndre Jordan at center. Uh, you know, you better be starting Soldier Boy at small forward and a time machine to take you back to 2008 at shooting guard because uh, that's just not the way the NBA works right now. Um, so, you know, I was disappointed that they didn't get Ibaka. It does seem like they were they were in pretty strong contention. Like, like Ibaka would have chosen the Nets at the taxpayer mid-level over Toronto had uh, had LA not been able to come in and offer more money. Um, you know, and, and that was, you know, his, his role there became available because Jermichael Green went to Denver because Jeremy Grant went to Detroit. Um, I would have certainly loved to have Jer- Jeremy Grant, but not at the money he's getting paid. Um, and I would have loved to have Jermichael Green, but that was obviously out of the Nets price range as well. So, you know, I, again, like the musical chairs there doesn't, you know, it leaves you, I think, a little bit wanting. Um, I don't feel like you got the exact sort of key piece to the puzzle out of this free agency, but I don't think you ever were going to. So I think realistically, you know, Jeff Green is exactly the type of player that the Nets needed to bring in. Hopefully he's got enough left in the tank to, to be a contributor. I think him playing the backup four um, is is a positive, you know, somebody they needed somebody at that role on this team. And then I think that sliding Torian Prince up to play backup three instead of continuing to play four, I think will also be a positive for him um, because, you know, it, it just allows him to play a little bit more in a position that I think he's familiar with. Um, and he can kind of let his shooting do the talking instead of needing to, to be thought of as this like ultimate, you know, versatile defender, which he really isn't. Fair. Well, and a fun, a fun exercise for me. And I'll say, I, I agree with you. I think Wes Matthews is more of a luxury for the Nets, he's in the same vein as a uh, Karis LeVert, just a little bit older, and uh, who knows how that defense is going to look, especially with the multiple injuries he's had in his career. But one thing that I was thinking about with Jeff Green and some of the players that Nets Twitter has been clamoring for is how much more does a player like Aaron Gordon give you than what the Nets are going to get from Jeff Green. And that goes back to the discussion around that I was thinking about in my head around Kennard and Shamit within the framework of the team, within the high usage players that the Nets have, guys' skill sets are minimized and they're when their roles are reduced. Green is on par with Aaron Gordon when it comes to shooting, probably on par with him when it comes to defense too. He's never shown as a high level defender. He's already friends with Kevin Durant. So you don't have to worry about the ego of Gordon thinking that he could potentially become a star and good Lord, the price tag, we get green for 2.5 mil for a year. What would we have to give up to get Aaron Gordon? That might've taken Dinwiddie. That might've taken a first round pick. So I think these are smart ways for Marks to look at the most meaningful holes in the team and think, okay, is there somebody out there that raises our championship ceiling enough that it's worth throwing in the chips for? Or can I get almost the same level of production that I would get on a minimum guy and stand pat until another move becomes available there so yeah i agree with you it was it was a bit disappointing not to get a baka but not within the framework of oh wow we 
uh, offered him the same exact contract that the Clippers did, and he chose the Clippers over the Nets. It was no, he chose the Clippers and more money over the Nets. And quite frankly, the Clippers have less question marks than the Nets do coming into this season, which is crazy to say because they are going into this season with a lot of question marks after all the locker room chemistry issues, after one of their key players and former six men of the year signed with their direct crosstown rival. There's a lot going on there. But that that was something that I was thinking, hey, everybody wanted Aaron Gordon. Jeff Green probably gives us the same amount of value within this current team that Gordon would. Gordon could probably eat more minutes up, but what is he doing with those minutes at this point, given his youth and lack of playing for anything but an eighth seed and overall lack of shooting and intelligence on the defensive side? Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, I think the other thing is, you know, we talked about, like, the Nets are, are slotting guys into – you know, as role players, right? So there's not, you know, it's it's not like you're getting, like the marginal upgrade of an Aaron Gordon is, like you just said, minimized by that fact. Um, you know, could he slide in the starting lineup? Probably. Um, and I guess there's something to the idea that you could, you could have sort of like a bully ball three next to KD as a four. But, um, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think the other thing that is a little bit under underlooked is like it's easy to get, um, really excited about you know big sexy names like like a James Harden or a Bradley Beal or or, or a Drew Holiday, um, but when you look at this team, like I think some of the other acquisitions, quote unquote, um, that you know you have is like you kept Spencer Dinwiddie, you kept Jared Allen, like you kept Karis LeVert, like those guys are all good players that you know we were tossing into deals left and right here and there, um, figuring that like they're going to be replaced by like you know Brett uh, Bruce Brown in, in the lineup. Um, <laughs> Hopefully not Brett Brown in the lineup. Um, and, you know, I, I think the Nets' depth will be a real asset this year. I think the depth and continuity um, are both things that are going to be more valuable this season than they ever have been before because of the quick turnaround, uh, because of the sort of slapdash way that training camp is being put together, um, and because of the fact that, like, and again, like, not to obviously, you know, hopefully these guys are going to get vaccinated relatively soon, um, you know, with, with the progress that's been made there and will be – you know, not talking about coronavirus by the time that the NBA finals rolls around, but like just looking at the way that every other major sport that's tried to play through this, not inside of a bubble um, has gone, like, you know, guys are going to test positive and guys are going to miss time. Um, And so I think the fact that they now have a rotation that's 13 to, you know, 13 NBA player, like legit NBA rotation players deep, plus Rodion's Karuks, who almost could be one, and Mick Claxton, who might be one as well, like, that's a pretty big deal to me. Um, and I think that that's something that, like, you know, you, you're never going to have seen a regular season that will set you up to take advantage of that like this one has. Um, so I, I guess from here, like, why don't we talk a little bit about, do, do we want to just buzz through sort of what some of the other Eastern Conference contenders did and, and sort of see where we feel like the Nets, the Nets stack up? I was just going to bring that up because I think comparing and contrasting the moves that the Nets made with the moves that are theoretical competition for contending this year made will also shed a light on what our mindset might be versus some of those contenders. Like, for example, you mentioned, hey, Spencer Dinwiddie is still on the Nets, where a lot of the trades that were buzzing around, the theoretical trades with Dinwiddie, were the Nets getting less value than Dinwiddie in a vacuum as a player, but getting a player back that fit within the framework of the Nets and maximizing the talents of the Nets stars, which I thought was interesting. There were some other contenders that made moves like that, whereas the Nets decided not to. So I'm just, I'm interested to go through and see what that says about all the Nets as a whole. 
Sure. I mean, is there a specific team that you're thinking of when you when you list that out? Sure. So the first team that I was thinking of is the Sixers, for example. If you want to look at just the Josh Richardson plus a pick for Seth Curry trade, if you are a team and you're looking to acquire talent and you're looking to build the best possible roster, I think there's an easy case to be made to say, hey, I'd rather have a player that can shoot well enough and defend and defend multiple positions and won't be a negative on either side of the floor. But if you're the 76ers and you're looking at how do I get the most out of my two stars who one of them can't shoot at all and won't shoot and the other one can make threes every once in a while and is willing to shoot but isn't that great, you need to have shooting around them. So, okay, giving up a better player and a pick just to see what we have with our guys so we can make a determination from there might be worth it to us. And the Nets didn't make any of those moves. That's true. Yeah, I think this, so the Sixers um, brought in Seth Curry, they brought in Danny Green, they brought in Dwight Howard, they drafted Tyrese Maxey, uh, they traded Al Horford away, they traded Josh Richardson, they traded, or they, uh, I don't know if they traded, I think lost free agency, Trey Burke. Um, you know, I, I t- like, <laughs> the, the Sixers are such an interesting team to me because the way that everybody has thought about them, had, like, th- I feel like there's this big market correction on everybody's, like, valuation of Sixers stock right, this, this year that I think really corresponded with you know like i feel like every analyst that that talks about the nba like when you talk about an nba team you're always talking about sort of like this dual perception of both what they are and then what their theoretical ceiling is and i think after last season there was this giant you know downgrade in what everybody thought the sixers theoretical ceiling could be uh i don't think that necessarily impacted what they were which is still a pretty fucking scary team if you run into them in the playoffs just because of the type of, of matchups that they can throw at you. And, you know, and, and then Daryl Morey comes in and they go out and they make these these moves, which like all of a sudden make much more sense than moves that they've made previously. And everybody's like, oh, the Sixers are totally going to be back, which I think in a way they are not necessarily because of those moves. Like those moves I think will help. Um, you'll get some marginal you know, upgrade out of them, but I think they'll be back just because they were better than, than people were giving them credit for. Um, so I really sort of like have this weird like way of, of uh, trying to evaluate them. I, I still think, you know, creation is going to be an issue for them, right? Like they don't have, uh, you know, like as silly as it is, like I think losing Trey Burke is kind of like kind of a big deal for them because he was one of the few guys that, that could be a creator on that team, um, you know, down the stretch in a playoff game. So we'll see. Um, we'll see sort of where they net out. I, I'm still terrified to face them in a series just because, with Embiid, like if Embiid is fully engaged and playing through the post, like he can just dominate in a way that nobody else in the NBA can. And and there's really nobody, I, f- there, I feel like there are very few people in the NBA that can stop him. Um, and, and I don't necessarily think that DeAndre Jordan is, is one of them. Well, think about the plays that they were in going into last postseason, too. Ben Simmons didn't play a single postseason game. Joel Embiid was the focus of the entire other team's defense. And the two best shooters that they needed to worry about, that any team that they were playing, were Tobias Harris and Josh Richardson. Again, good enough shooters, but not great shooters. So I think we're in for a a Tobias Harris bounce back series as well, because he is underrated as a playmaker. He was the guy that they were trying to run the offense to, to take some of the pressure off Embiid. He is not a guy who's going to shoot well if he is the best shooter on the floor and the defense is keyed in on stopping him. Now that he is going to be the third best player on the floor sometimes, or hey, maybe even the fourth, he is going to get a lot more open shots. It's going to open up the floor for him to facilitate. 
it, there, it, a lot of it is going to be addition by them simply getting healthy and then also slotting players into slotting players skill sets into a hierarchy that allows them to be better with those skill sets i.e tobias harris being the third focus when it comes to shooting on the defense and maybe he can just stand in the corner I also feel like, you know, part of everybody's expectation for them last year was that they were going to be just an absolutely elite defense, and then they weren't. Um, I think that they could just – I think they could have run it back and still been an incredible defense. I think removing Horford, even though he's an amazing defender, just because of some of the positional uh, confusion it clears up. Like, I, I really think they could be a monster defensive team um, with relatively little, uh, like, personnel change so so that's pretty scary so i think we could say the sixers got better um let, let's we'll go a little bit faster i think through the rest of the east here for sure um so miami i, I guess do you think miami got better i guess uh, i'm gonna start with <laughs> let me, let me do, let's do some quick ones i guess uh indiana pretty much stayed the same I, I don't really feel like there were any major moves that that changed sort of where they are so th- i think relatively they're they're a little further down in the conference is that fair I think they stayed the same, but I think that they theoretically could be get better come the playoffs last next season because against Sabonis, who is arguably their best player right now, didn't play in the playoffs. Oladipo was a shell of himself. So if Oladipo ends up coming back, playing anywhere near the level that he was prior to the injury and prior to last season, that is almost like a free agent acquisition because he gave them nothing. Sabonis being there in the playoffs adds a lot to that team. And I think there's theoretically a Miles Turner trade to be had there too because they were dangling him for Gordon Hayward. So there's there's some noise for the Pacers to make, and now they have a coach who is more of a modern coach, not a, a Nate McMillan type who by all accounts is a great relationship with the players guy, but not an incredible X's and O's guy and was really focused on guys taking whatever shots they had available to them. And that ended up with their offense being very suboptimal. When you look at modern top offense efficiency, trying to maximize free throws, shots, the rim and three pointers. So I actually could see them making a decent jump. I don't know if the regular season record will be better, but I think there will be more of a force to reckon with come the playoffs. But as far as going from a playoff team to, a contender and being a true challenger to the Nets in terms of making the finals? No. So I would I would say no no meaningful moves there, although I think they're in the same boat as the Sixers where they had some very, very key injuries. They made a coaching framework changeover, and both of those things are going to be uh, very big boons to them. You had mentioned the Heat. I think the Heat stood pat. Maybe they even got a little bit worse, but I think that they'll be around the same. I I think they're going to miss Jay Crowder, but they weren't willing to pay him, and they're trying to preserve their cap space. So they'll be there. They'll be a tough team. Spolster's an incredible coach. Whoever they're matched up with, they're going to give at least a six-round series, even if they end up losing that. But they didn't get better. Uh, the Celtic. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was just saying. Yeah, I, I feel like with the Heat, like they're, I, I like the Harkless, the Harkless versus Crowder uh, thing is very interesting to me. I think, I think they're probably worse. I, I definitely think they're worse than they were in the playoffs last year. Um, hard to say for me how much I would have expected playoff Crowder to like sustain that level of production going forward anyway. Um, so I don't necessarily think that the the exchange of like future Crowder for future Harkless is that much, is that bad, but I do think that they will just feel, um, the, the, the burn from just sort of regressing to the mean away from what playoff Crowder was. I I also think, uh, you know, Derek Jones is is another, you know, probably not a huge loss, but, um, I really like that pickup for, for, uh, Portland. So, 
Um, just wanted to throw that out there. I think Bradley's a, will be a good player for them as well. Like they've got they've got some good defensive wings. I mean, I, I think they'll I think they'll certainly be a tough out, um, but maybe not necessarily better than they were last year. Agreed. And if we look at the Celtics, they brought in a banger in Tristan Thompson, who can be somebody that can go up against Embiid in the post in the playoffs. I think that's what that move was all about. Can he actually defend Embiid? Can he stop him? No, but he's just a big body to throw at him and maybe make his life a little bit more difficult. And I know that people are hating on Jeff Teague, but bringing in a capable steward to run the offense when Kemba Walker is not on the floor, bring a little bit more defense even though he's not a great defender at this age i i think that's going to be a bigger move than people are letting on despite how much jeff green has dropped off and the perceived lack of shooting there i think he could be in for a bounce back renaissance uh 60 win hawks all-star game appearance oh i kept i kept calling him jeff green i meant jeff teague (laughs) cool 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 oops (laughs) stretchy wingy bigs (laughs) please Don't talk about Jeff. Don't talk about how much Jeff Green shooting is dropped off, Brett. You have the optimistic take. Oh man, yeah, we've uh, rescinded our offer to Jeff Green and uh, brought in Jeff Teague because we needed another guard who has uh, questionable shooting and questionable defense. Um, so the Celtics, I, I don't necessarily know if they got meaningfully better, but I think that they're better equipped matchup wise. Uh, to A, not drop off a ton creation-wise when Kemba isn't on the floor because with Wanamaker, I don't think anybody was respecting his game. If he hits an open shot, you feel like, oh, hey, we we got something as a fan. Um, And they can now match up with some of the larger teams. Like the, I don't know if Tristan Thompson can uh, chase Brook Lopez around, but he can certainly bang around in the post with a Joel Embiid. Um, did, I, think I, could chase, I think I could chase Brooke Lopez around, Brad, and I'm slow. <laughs> hey, he looks very spelt. Yeah, he does. He does. Uh, and speaking, <laughs> speaking of Lopez, let's just talk about the Bucks real quick. So uh, Bucks added Drew Holiday. They added Tory Craig. They added Bobby Portis, DJ Augustine, Bryn Forbes. Um, out the door are Wes Matthews, Eric Bledsoe, George Hill, Robin Lopez, Sterling Brown. Um, I, you know, I think the Bucks got better. Like, like I, you know, was listening to to Zach Lowe and Chris Herring, and, and Lowe's thing was like, forget that the Bogdan Bogdanovich thing ever happened. Which, incidentally, I think you know the the Bucks should just forbid themselves from ever dealing with any players involving Ogden in their name, Malcolm Brogdon, Bogdan Bogdanovich. I, I would stay away from Boyan Bogdanovich as well, just to be safe. Um, uh, Rick Carlisle from Ogdenville, New York. I would, I would, I would approach with caution. Um, anyway. Basically saying, you know, if you forget that the Bogdanovich thing ever happened, like, did the Bucks get better? I think the answer is yes. I think Drew Holiday gives them what Eric Bledsoe did defensively, probably actually a little bit better on them than the floor, and much less of an offensive liability. So that's a positive. Um, you know, I think Tory Craig is, you know, another good defender on that team. Maybe not the best offensive player, but if you're looking at, you know, a, a crunch time five of uh, Middleton, Giannis, Holiday. Greg, maybe, you know, and, and I think you have some optionality with, with those last two pieces. Um, you know, I think that's better than where they were last year. Um, I think they'll miss George Hill a little bit. Um, I don't think that DJ Augustine, you know, really replaces kind of the offensive punch that he had off of the, um, off the bench. I, I also feel like George Hill is a sleeper, you know, he's on Oklahoma city right now. And certainly somebody that, uh, you know, if you have a first round pick, they would probably part with. Uh, and I, I think he, you know, I would 
keep tabs on him as a candidate for a Philly upgrade um, if we're if we're doing such things. Um, but I think the Bucks are better. I think you know I, I don't necessarily know that this gets them over their hump. I think a lot of that is is you know how does how does Bud handle um, the rotations in the playoffs? But I think getting Drew Holiday, who can help kind of as a creator, but also you know be an elite level defender, you know th- they're going to be a tough fucking team to score on. I, I will I will say that. I'll take the opposite take there. I think that they got better, but I don't think they raised their championship ceiling enough for me to be terrified of them. I think if you do pull off the Bogdan sign and trade or getting Bogdan on that team, then you go into the season knowing who your four guys are that are going to be playing at the end of the game. And you can slot in. Maybe you hope Dante DiVincenzo improves enough that he's a reliable guy at the end of games. And I think now a lot of the season is relying on how much does he improve and does he solidify himself as, oh, wow, this guy is is really good and we need to play him at the end of games because he is not going to make bad decisions. He can defend at a high level. And he is a very confident, uh, very confident shooter that doesn't shrink in the moment. They're relying a lot on that right now. Or they're relying on a uh, or, or on DJ Augustine to be out there and be the, the steward with the ball that's not going to turn it over and maybe knock down some big shots like he's done in the first round of the playoffs versus the Bucks or the Raptors. It almost felt like a Doc Rivers move to me where Rivers was notorious for signing players that played well against his teams, regardless of what their overall body of work was. And they're like, Hey, you know, DJ Augustine, he's hit a couple big shots against us. Won a couple first round playoff games that made our fans be like, Oh, not, not again. We're going to lose a game or two to the magic. Let's sign him and see what happens. But I think that losing Bogdan was a bigger blow. Drew Holiday is an incredible player. I think that does make them better, but I don't necessarily know if it makes them good enough for them to now be a terrifying team. Cool. Uh, and then I guess the last, the last thing that we haven't really talked about is the, is the Raptors. So I think they've, they're downgraded um, both in terms of just losing both Ibaka and Marc Gasol. Uh, Aaron, I really like Aaron Baines a lot. I don't think he brings offensively what either of those guys do. Um, I think he's a great rebounder, but uh, you know, just in terms of uh, like the, the, pa- the level of passing that you get out of Marc Gasol, I, I don't think so. I mean, you know, if you're, I also like am worried about Gasol kind of falling off of a cliff a little bit. So I'm not necessarily sure that that was like a bad, or I would not have done that move if I was the Raptors, but I do feel like, you know, the window that they've had is somewhat closing. I think there are some fairly legitimate question marks around Pascal Siakam and his kind of ability to, you know, take the mantle as the best player of that team. I I still think that they're like going to be a tough out. They're going to be a grinding team. I, I would not at all be shocked to see them in the top three, uh, of the East just because that's the type of team they are and that's the type of coach Nick Nurse is. But, um, you know, I'm a little bit less scared of them uh, than I was last year. That's that's my feeling. Let me put it this way. I don't think there's any way that Pascal Siakam is going to perform as poorly in the playoffs as he did this season. And that, to me, is a 16-game I think they're going to be a little bit better come playoff time. I love Marcus Gasol. I think he's great. I love Ibaka. I think that they're great. Um, I think those guys are a little bit older, and they slot in better to the teams that they went to, and they're going to be fine with Baines because centers are asked to play a limited role. They're definitely going to lose some playmaking from Gasol, and they can't run the offense through Baines like they did with him. But I think with Pascal really digging in, figuring out 
where he fell short in the playoffs and then coming back with a vengeance, they could be a bit of a force to be reckoned with because that'll cover for some of the Lowry aging deficit. So I'm not I'm not gonna sleep on the Raptors this year. I think that they'll be I think that they'll again be better. I think the bubble affected some of these teams weirdly. And some of the teams that we might be a little bit more down on because they didn't make massive moves, whether it's the Celtics or the Pacers or the Raptors, I think that they'll be better. Yeah, that makes sense. That's very fair. Uh, I, I guess I would be stupid to sleep on the Raptors as well. Um, the Tampa, the Tampa Bay uh, Raptors now. Um, right. Which I feel like Raptors are actually sort of like more appropriate for Tampa, but that's a different story. Um, so then I guess the, the one other team that we should probably talk about. So, so we've talked Heat, Bucks, Celtics, Sixers, Raptors, Indiana. That's six teams. Obviously the Nets being a seventh that you would expect to be, you know, in the mix uh, for the playoffs. Uh, I guess the eighth, the eighth best team in, in the league, you know, the, uh, you know, I think Chicago maybe had a, has a whiff of friskiness, but they're a little bit, you know, further away. I think Charlotte's kind of interesting with some quality role players like PJ Washington and Miles Bridges alongside Gordon Hayward. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like just given that they're going to be committed to letting LaMelo kind of learn as he goes on the job, I don't necessarily know that they're going to be in, in super contention, but the team I think that, that obviously had you know, arguably the best offseason in the East in terms of just Delta from where you thought they were last year to where you think that they are now is probably the Atlanta Hawks. Um, I know you've had a lot of thoughts about that. Why don't you, you tell me if, if we should take them uh, seriously or not? Well, I see the Atlanta Hawks being one of those teams that could max out in the second round of the playoffs and really give whatever team they match up with a scare due to the sheer amount of shooters and playmakers they now have on this team and the way that they short up their defense around Trey Young, who no matter what that guy does his entire career simply due to his size will never, ever, 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 ever be a defensive positive, which stinks, but he's still one of the most fun players to watch in the league and watching the Hawks next season is going to be a treat to say the least, but they brought in, uh, they stole Bogdan Bogdanovich from the Bucks. They signed fan favorite Chris Dunn. They brought in Rajon Rondo, who decided to leave the Lakers to go play for the Atlanta Hawks, which was shocking. They brought in Danilo Gallinari. They got rid of Dwayne Dedman so they could get rid of that log jam with Capella and John Collins. They still have moves to make with uh, potentially shipping Collins or Capella out of there if a team needs a center during the season. So they have a very dynamic, uh, short-up lineup. They know who their end-of-game closers are going to be. And Trey Young, for the first time, has not only secondary creators to help take the pressure off him on offense and maybe even allow him to work off-ball a little bit, which would be super interesting to watch, but he has long defensive guards to play around him that can cover up some of his mistakes and bigs that are at the rim if people do get by him. So I think they're going to be a really fun team to watch. I don't know if they have the right coach in place to maximize that system, but they've got a little bit of time to figure it out. Are they a true Eastern Conference Finals contender? In my mind, no, they're not. But could they give a team a scare in the second round with that lineup? For sure. And are they going to be a ton of fun to watch? Absolutely. League pass team. Cool. Um, yeah, I, I agree with everything there. And then I guess just to quickly round up the West, I mean, obviously the Lakers, I think, were the biggest winner of free agency this year. So um, they're, they're, I think, the definitive title favorite right now, uh, adding Wes Matthews, Marcus Saul, Dennis Schroeder, Montrez Harrell, Jordan Bell, Alfonso McKinney um, to, you know, a team already with LeBron. It's pretty, pretty impressive. Um, what's up to the cat there? Uh, and then... <laughs> 
the Clippers, I think probably either lateral or maybe they got a little bit, uh, probably lateral, but but still very good. I think just also with the opportunity to bounce back from what was a disappointing playoffs for them. Uh, the Nuggets, I would say probably lateral as well. You know, I think you got to you got to see a little bit. Did the you know is the Jamal Murray magic from the bubble real? Um, I think Jamal Green for Jeremy Grant is is a probably a, a lateral move. I think RJ Hampton is a great pick for them. I think they they've got they're my most interesting team in terms of like how a small market team has been built um, to, to have ongoing sustained success. I look at them sort of as like the new Spurs. Like I don't necessarily think that, that they're going to be finals contenders next year, but I think they're going to be one of these teams that's like, you know, buying for a Western conference championship for like the next 12 years or something. Uh, Portland, I think had the best off season by far, but probably still in that puncher's tier. Uh, Phoenix obviously had a really good off season. I don't necessarily know that they're a true contender. Um, and then Dallas, like I, you know, I thought they made a lot of smart moves this offseason. I'm not discrediting it at all. I, I don't think anything that they did this offseason like, makes you think, like, okay, these guys are going to get tenant for the title. But I don't think you can rule them out of that just because of how good Luka is. And, you know, if he makes a, a major leap, I think they could be right there. Um, so, you know, I think – but I think the big news coming out of the West is the Lakers. I mean, that's the only thing that really makes me reconsider sort of where the Nets uh, stand because I, I think that they're on a tier above right now, anybody in the East. Is that is that fair to say? <laughs> So I, I, I disagree a little bit on the Clippers. The way that I'm looking at this is which teams which teams shored up their most glaring weaknesses and also added folks to the team that will be in their closing lineups come the second round of the playoffs and beyond. And if we're thinking about the Lakers within that framework, I'm not quite sure if they added anybody that's going to be in that closing lineup. I don't think Harrell is going to be in there because you're going to want Davis at the five. That's where he is his most effective, both defensively and offensively. And those are their best lineups last season. Schroeder could theoretically be in those lineups, but I feel like you could you could slot anybody from that team into that position because LeBron's going to be the main creator. So if Schroeder's shooting, which is in a very, very small sample size over the course of his entire career continues, and you could see him in that lineup, and you could very much see him outside of that lineup with them opting for a little bit more defense and a little bit more spot-up shooting, so you're just not sure. To me, that's more the Montrezl Harrell, uh, the Marcus Soul, the Dennis Schroeder moves are more, hey, this is going to be a really rough regular season. We just went through a long postseason run, shortest offseason in history. There are going to be a lot of players sitting out for COVID because we're not in a bubble. We need people that can take the pressure off of Anthony Davis and LeBron James in the regular season. So we roll into the off or roll into the postseason as healthy as possible, which that is, I think that's a huge advantage this year and something you brought up with the Nets earlier. But I don't know if that necessarily makes them better in the last five minutes of the Western Conference Finals. Whereas if you look at what the Clippers did, I think Ibaka is going to be in their closing lineup. And he brings more defense than some guy than uh, Montrose Harold would have. And he brings more shooting than Harold would have as well, which is exactly what you want around guys like Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. So I think that that is going to end up being a really, really sneaky sign. And he fits their team, even despite all the skills that it's dropped off with age, better than he would have fit almost any other team besides the Kafkov Nets, which is why that was so unfortunate. I think that was a massive move for the Clippers, and I think that they got the most meaningfully better based on A, showing up that glaring weakness of having a center that doesn't take anything off the table defensively, but also is a positive on offense to play 
at the end of games because before you had what Zubach, which okay you throw him in there he can bang around down low he's not a terrible player but he's definitely not going to shoot or you have Harold who's a great offensive rebounder he's going to be a gravity guy in the pick and roll but he can't really defend any bigs uh, on the other end of the floor and he can't really shoot I, I think that's a huge acquisition for them interesting okay so i got two things that i disagree with there uh one is sort of ancillary which is i i think that I, I do think that Ibaka fits the Clippers better than he would have fit the Nets. I think that's part of his decision-making process. Um, and, and the reason that I say that is because um, he would have required an, the Nets to make another move in order to really fit him in there. Um, I think he could have dropped him in a starting lineup um, on, on Brooklyn and he would have fit great, but I think you would have wanted to, you would have wanted to adjust like flip Jared Allen for somebody else basically. Um, so I don't know. That, that's not really here, here nor there, but uh, just, just throwing that out there. And then the second thing is, for the Lakers, I do think that Wes Matthews will be in that closing lineup. I think he's an upgrade over Danny Green there. Um, so, so I think that's important. I agree with the way that you're thinking about it in general. I think with the Lakers specifically, I think it misses a little bit of the point of what made them so good last year, which was their ability to show so many different looks. I mean, if you looked at them across the different playoff series that they had, I mean, they had different closing lineups in each one, you know, whether it was their ability to go small and play the Rockets with Davis at center, but their ability to stay big and, and have big minutes from Dwight and JaVale um, against a team like, uh, you know, a player like Nicole Jokic. So I, I, I get, I get what you're saying. I mean, ultimately, like, I think I agree with you overall, but, but just, just wanted to throw out those two things. So I guess, do you, do you have any other quick words on the West before we wrap this up? As I see, uh, nap time is just about over. <laughs> <laughs> oh, your nap time's over. Mine's just about to begin. I I don't have any other words on the on the West. What I will say is, it seemed like the teams that have had the best off seasons or at least the best PR re- reactions to their off seasons so far have been ones that had very very clear glaring weaknesses and made moves to address those weaknesses. And my question to you would be as a wrap up uh, before we shoot right into uh, post nap time sugar highs is do we even know what the Nets glaring weakness is? So it, it, that, that's a fantastic and interesting question. I, I, I think there's two ways that I would look at it, right? One is if you believe that their weakness is um, you know, needing somebody that could sort of be that s- sort of uh, bigger sort of stretch for small ball five type of player, which I think was the glaring sort of position of need that they've had for a couple years. Um, I think if you put aside all of the assumptions about these bigger trades, like getting Jeff Green to fill that role to me does really hit the nail on the head in terms of what they needed. I, I wonder a little bit how their offseason would be sort of adjudicated if there weren't these assumptions that they were making these bigger swing trades and there wasn't kind of, which, which I feel like was just sort of fueled by not necessarily like needing another guy, but just like the fact that we've never seen this team, you know, in completed form um, last year means that like, we really don't know what they look like together. I mean, we really don't know how far away they are. And so the, the narrative kind of coalesced around this, like we need a third star kind of thing, but I don't know that that's necessarily true. So in a way, I think this probably did a good job of efficiently addressing what I believe their greatest weakness to be. Um, I don't know that we, but I, but I think to your point, like, I don't know that we necessarily do know that. I think the other thing is 
the, the narrative is always like around like, well, the Nets have really struggled defensively. The assumption is like they're going to be a great offensive team. But if you look at them the last two seasons, they've actually been a better defensive team than offensive team. Um, and they've been a pretty sneakily kind of good defensive team too. I mean, they, they, they've rebounded pretty well. They've been like uh, 14th or 10th in the league for cleaning the glass and defensive rating. So I, I feel like a little bit, you know, if you assume um, some minutes for Jared Allen, you assume, you know, their ability to play sort of draft coverages uh, and, you know, continue on that trajectory. Like, I think that there's a decent defense to be had with the personnel that they're putting on the floor. And I think specifically the player that I'm going to look at from the very beginning, from the first day of preseason is Karis LeVert. Like, you know, he's in a different role. He's not being asked to do what he's being asked to do on offense in the bubble and and things like that. Like how well can he do committing himself um, as a defender from, from day one? So kind of roundabout answer on that to your question, bring us home with, with your final thoughts. Well, and that's ultimately the thing that's decided how I feel overall about the Nets offseason. I think that standing pat allows us to understand what the most important areas that we need to address are. And then when we know what those things are, we go all in, regardless of what our most glaring weaknesses are. Going all in for a James Harden or a Bradley Beal makes sense regardless because getting a player of that caliber, first team, all NBA, potential MVP candidate, former MVP, I mean, that is just, it doesn't matter what your glaring weaknesses are. If you have a chance to make that move, you make it. But if you have a move available to you like trading three future first round picks and two pick swaps for Drew Holiday, and you're not 100% convinced that that takes you from potential contender to finals favorite or one of the top two teams favored to win the finals, then you probably don't do it, especially if you haven't seen your team on the floor as constructed. And the other thing I'll throw out there is we're still in the KD recovery window. By all accounts and past Achilles injuries, we've seen it take two plus years to recover. Katie's injury happened on June 10th, 2019. This season is going to start roughly a year and a half into that timeline. The playoffs start on May 22nd, 2021. So he's still not going to be past that two-year window as we're entering the playoffs this year. And maybe if we make the Eastern Conference Finals and we make the finals, he's finally going to be past that threshold. But my take is, and the way that I'm looking at this, and the Nets might be looking at it too, is it's going to take him one more season to truly get back to what he's going to be moving forward in his career. And until we assess what we have right now and then say, okay, if this gets 5% better, what will KD look like next season? It doesn't make sense for us to trade five first round picks and our best current assets in Dinwiddie, Jared Allen, and Spencer Dinwiddie, unless it is an incredibly obvious move like, a, oh, hey, we could bring James Harden or Bradley Beal to the Nets. Yeah, I guess another way to look at it is like, if if the variance with what this team is going to be is entirely based on KD's recovery right now, then the type of move that it's worth swinging for the fence for is one that allows him to be the third best player on a championship team. Um, and so if he's the third best behind Harden and Kyrie, uh, you know, I, that, that's, you know, I, I could see that. I don't think he's the third best behind Kyrie and Drew Holiday though. Um, I don't think he's the third best behind Kyrie in any scenario, but I, you know, I, I could see how, you know, for stretches that could be the case. So 
I, I think that's a that's a really good way to think of it and a really good way to frame it up. This, this was fun to talk through. I would not have thought about it in that way had I not gone through, dug through all this information and ultimately decided, man, I just don't, I don't see any world given the Nets roster as constructed or is worth giving up that much for Drew Holiday and having incredibly little flexibility to make a splash of that caliber moving forward. And if that doesn't work, then you're stuck. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the flip side of the coin is you only have so many opportunities to find that person. So wouldn't it suck to go through this season and then find out that that person was Drew Holiday? Um, if you if you sort of felt like you had a decent idea that it would be, then then that's probably not that um, bad of a risk to take. But um, either way, we'll see. I you know I I'm still all in on this idea. Uh, I'm getting a little bit fired up about it now, and, and maybe I'm chugging some Kool Aid. But I really think that this Nets team can be good defensively with the people that they have. Um, particularly with, you know, Dinwiddie being as big as he is, you know, as a guarding point guards with Karis LeVert, you know, buying in defensively, knowing that that's sort of the key to, to his uh, status on this team is his defense. I think with Bruce Brown off the bench um, with, uh, you know, Torian Prince guarding threes with Jeff Green, you know, getting in there and mucking it up with uh, other, uh, you know, bigger fours and, and with Jared Allen, I think continuing to improve, continuing to be, to prove that he can be a defensive anchor because I, I really, I really truly think that he can. And I think that the way that everybody's kind of been flipping him into every single deal construction um, without really sense of sort of what his value is as an asset because centers are undervalued and blah, 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 blah. Like I think he's a really, really good player and I would love nothing more than for him to shine this season, um, earn his starting spot back and, uh, you know, just, just really ball out on the defensive side of the basketball. The theme of the Nets last two years up in that trade value, baby. Woo. All right. Well, Brett, uh, I guess I'll tell the people that they can, uh, yeah, uh, they can email us, uh, Russell and Fro at gmail.com. You can also email them. That's Paul's at gmail.com. Uh, you can follow us online at Russell and Fro, uh, and, uh, you can, you know, download our podcast out of iTunes on Spotify, Stitcher, Breaker, SoundCloud, Cracker, Uncle Cracker, uh, Cracker Barrel, you know, wherever, wherever you get your pods, uh, Anything else for the people? If you are listening to us in a Cracker Barrel and we don't get an email from you, I'll be very disappointed. Absolutely disappointed. Please email us immediately. Bye. Mama, you birthed me. Brooklyn, you nursed me. You schooled me with hard knocks. Better than Berkeley. They said you murked me by the time I was 21. That shit disturbed me. But you never hurt me. Hello, Brooklyn. If we had a daughter, guess what? I'm a caller. Brooklyn Carter. When I left you for Virginia, it didn't offend you. Because you know I only stepped out to get dinner. Hello, Brooklyn. How you doing? Baby, I'm just saying. Oh, that's our back.